Well, it is good to be back. It has been a month since I have done any preaching. I saw a gay pool last week and I said, I, I haven't spoken for four weeks. I hope I haven't forgotten how. She said, well, it's like riding a bicycle. It'll come back to you. So um, I hope she's right. Turn to Second Corinthians, will you? Paul's epistle to Corinth, the second one he wrote, Second Corinthians. I hope you'll take Brian's uh, comments to heart about getting in a growth group as we grow. It's so easy for us to become impersonal and to leave people out. And really the only way I know that you can have the kind of fellowship that you're looking for and the opportunity to use your gifts is to get into one of these small groups. You'll have a chance to study the passage on your own at home. Brian will be preparing study sheets for you, and then you'll discuss it together in a growth group. And then you can come here on Sunday morning and check up on me and see if I've got it straight. So you have an unparalleled opportunity to study this, uh, this book together with us. Second Corinthians. Um, I suppose uh, one of the hardest things to endure is, is rejection. I uh, can handle almost anything, but, but rejection is very, very difficult, particularly from people that you're very fond of, and particularly when your intentions are uh, misinterpreted and your, your motives are misunderstood. That, that's exactly the sort of problem that Paul is confronted with here uh, from the people in Corinth. Let me give you a little bit of background so you understand why Paul wrote this book and why he talks about the things that he does talk about in this book. Uh, Paul was the founder of this church in Corinth. He planted the church there. Church planting's tough. As you know, we're involved in that ministry through IMM. It takes a long time and a lot of blood, sweat, and tears to plant a church in a place where none exists. And that's what Paul did. He went to Corinth, this big, bustling, metropolitan area, seaport town, much like San Francisco or Seattle or Portland or New York. Uh, cosmopolitan, polyglot, people from all over the Roman Empire uh, came to Corinth to trade and to live. Very, uh, very wicked city. A lot of drugs, a lot of quirky sex, a lot of, a lot of bad things going on. Very, very difficult place to be a Christian. Uh, since I come from California, I can poke fun at Californians, but I suppose the, uh, uh, the best example is, is what's going on in Southern California. Ray Stedman told us last Tuesday that they now have a sign between California and Oregon that says, Now leaving California, resume normal behavior. <laughs> it's really not that bad down there. I lived there for 18 years, but people always think in terms of... And, you know, California is sort of synonymous with uh, strange goings-on, and, and that's exactly what you had at Corinth. Strange place. As a matter of fact... Uh, they had coined a word. To Corinthianize was to engage in various types of uh, unusual sexual activities. And prostitutes were called Corinthian girls and so forth. So it was a very difficult place to live and work and, and try to live out the, the Christian life. Nevertheless, the church was planted there and Paul built some leadership and he left behind some elders. And he was there about 18 months and then he took off for other parts of the Roman Empire. About a year and a half later, he was in Ephesus just across the sea from, from Corinth. And uh, some folks came over to Ephesus from Corinth, from the household of Chloe. Now, Chloe is not the lady that Spike Jones used to sing about. Chloe was some uh, probably wealthy lady in, in Corinth 
who uh, who was a believer, a part of that church there, and, and some of her, some of the members of her household, perhaps her husband or her her children that were traveling on business, came to Ephesus, ran into Paul, told him what was going on in Corinth. Paul was very distressed, and he wrote a letter. We don't have that letter. Uh, Paul had been in the ministry about 20 years by this time, and he had written hundreds of letters, which we don't have. Please don't believe that the 13 books in the New Testament are the only letters that Paul wrote. That simply isn't so. There are a lot of them. He wrote a letter off to Corinth, we know from the wording of 1 Corinthians, and it wasn't very well received. So he wrote another one, our canonical book of 1 Corinthians. Not 2 Corinthians, but 1 Corinthians. And uh, reports began to come back that they, they didn't take Paul's writings seriously. And that, that disturbed him. So he sent Timothy over to check things out, and, and they humiliated Timothy. We don't know exactly what they did, but he, he came back a thoroughly chastened young man, just whipped. And so uh, Paul sent another letter, which he describes in, in 2 Corinthians as a very painful letter. He must have been very, uh, very pointed, and it pained him to say some of the things he had to say. And he sent that letter. And it may be that Paul himself visited and saw the situation himself. And then eventually he sent Titus, who was a, a little older, a little more mature. And Titus went over and Paul was con- really concerned about what was going on. He talks in, in 2 Corinthians about his anxiety for all the churches. And he was torn up by what was happening in Corinth. So much so that uh, he, he, he left Ephesus. He actually left Ephesus for another reason. We'll see that later in the series. There was a riot in Ephesus and his life was somewhat endangered. So he left, went up to Troas, had an opportunity to preach, couldn't preach. He was so upset, went across the uh, Dardanelles over to what today is uh, northern Greece into Macedonia. And Titus came back through and gave him a report. It was a pretty good report. But Titus said there are still some problems in Corinth. And the, and the greatest of these is the fact that these people are having trouble accepting your authority as an apostle. And they said three or four things about Paul. Now, we know this from reading 2 Corinthians. There's no extra-biblical information that will help us. But we know from reading 2 Corinthians that certain things had happened. Number one, they said Paul speaks with a forked tongue. He speaks out of one side of his mouth, and he says one thing, and he says something out of the other side of his mouth. He says he's going to come visit us. They didn't come. I think he's a coward. I think he's afraid to face us. So Paul has to answer that charge in the, in the first chapter, as we'll see next week. Then they said a strange thing. <coughs> Pardon me. They said, Paul doesn't charge for his ministry. That's all. The teachers, the philosophers, the rhetoricians of Corinth always uh, were paid a stipend for their teaching. Paul doesn't charge. So they were saying, well, his teaching is worth exactly what he charges for. And they dismissed it. And furthermore, they said, it may be that Paul's got his hand in the till. Because how else can we account for uh, the money that he has to live on. And then finally they said Paul is not very impressive in his speech and he isn't very articulate when he talks. He doesn't sound like one of the philosophers and teachers and being able to speak well was a hallmark of a teacher in those days. And uh, so they felt he just, you know, and, and, he, and he wasn't one of the regular apostles, so they discounted his authority. So Paul writes to take these matters up in, in series. And, and, Enshrined within his answers is a, one of the most intensely personal autobiographical sections in all of Paul's writing, 2 Corinthians 2, 14 through the end of chapter 7, where he opens himself up in a way that he doesn't in any other book. We'll get an inside glimpse into the thinking and in, in, in the heart of the apostle.
Now let's uh, let's look at the book. Second Corinthians chapter one. The salutation is uh, given to us in the first three verses. Two verses, excuse me. Uh, my son Josh is taking speech, and uh, he came home to tell me that there are two components in any speech. There are there is the sender and the receiver. And I thought that was very profound, and uh, precise, that's precisely what you have here in the salutation. You have a sender and some receivers. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. Those are the senders. Paul is actually the writer. Timothy is associated with Paul. Nice note, really, that Paul includes Timothy. He calls him literally the brother, the brother you ran out of town, the brother you disgraced, the brother you treated so shabbily. He's associated with me in this endeavor. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, the brother to the church of God in Corinth, together with all the saints throughout Achaia. Achaia was the, uh, was the province in which Corinth and Athens, these two cities, were located. If you remember what a map of Greece looks like at the bottom of Greece, there is something that looks like a glove with fingers extending down into the Mediterranean, or actually the Aegean Sea, and that's called the Peloponnesus Peninsula. And uh, this was the ancient Roman province of Achaia. That's where Corinth was, that's where Athens was. Paul says, uh, this letter is written to the church in Corinth with all the Christians and the churches, the little churches that are scattered all over this region. So the book was not intended to be read merely to the church in Corinth, but to Christians everywhere and ultimately to us here in the 20th century in, in Boise. Now really all Paul says about himself is that he was an apostle by the will of God. He's going to elaborate in chapters uh, 10 and 11 and, and 12 in the book, but he wants us to know that his apostleship didn't come through the mails. Uh, he didn't get it from our friend Mr. Hensley down in California who, uh, who uh, bestows this honor on anybody who sends in money. Um, he, didn't, he didn't get it from the apostles. He didn't get it from any man. It came from God himself, though he wasn't one of the twelve. He had the same authority that the twelve had. And as a matter of fact, he had the same authority that our Lord Jesus had. Let's keep that in mind. That's why I don't like red-letter Bibles particularly. If you have one, don't throw it away. But, but for goodness sake, don't, don't think that the red letters are more authoritative than the rest of the Bible. They aren't. What Jesus said has authority in our lives because he is our Lord. But what the apostles said had authority, just as much authority. When they spoke, with, they, they spoke with the authority of Jesus Christ himself. So when we read this book, let's realize what we're looking at. This, uh, this is our Lord's epistle to us. It's not merely the apostle Paul. It is an apostle who speaks with the authority of Jesus Christ himself. Now, there is a, a brief salutation here. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. These are Paul's hallmarks. Very often it's grace, mercy, and peace, but he doesn't mention mercy because he's going to go on to elaborate on that aspect of God's character. Grace and peace, he says, uh, come, from, uh, come from God. Grace is unmerited favor. Grace is salvation without works. Grace is uh, saying that we get the whole deal without any effort on our part. We simply have to receive it. As Dr. Kaiser said last night, grace is a full scholarship. It's a free ride. Our Lord picks up uh, the tab. We don't even have to leave the tip. He pays the whole thing. It's not you haul, it's he hauls. 
he, he takes us just as we are and he begins to make something out of us. That's what grace is. It's God's resources available to us at Christ's expense, as someone has stated the acrostic, G-R-A-C. God's resources at Christ's expense costs us nothing except a submissive will. You come and get it. And the result is peace. The two go together. Grace is unmerited favor. Peace is the result. Peace is a very difficult term to uh, define. It's a Hebrew word, basically. Shalom. And uh, probably the closest equivalent to it is our word okay, or since the Mercury Project, a-okay. We have God's grace, and as a result, everything's okay. We're at peace. We're at rest. We're in a state of equilibrium, a state of balance. That's basically the meaning of the term. Now, he plunges right into the book, beginning with verse 3, with a eulogy, a doxology. Praise, he says, be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The word praise here is the word from which we get our word eulogy. It's an attribution of praise. It's a word of worship, expression of appreciation uh, for all that God is. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Father of compassion. That's a Hebrew idiom. Uh, it's written in Greek, but it's still a Hebrew idiom. Paul was a Jew, and he, his thought forms were Hebrew. When he says the father of compassion, that's just the Hebrew way of saying he's a compassionate father. Uh, the noun is plural. He, he's the father of compassions. It's the word for mercy. If you have a New American Standard Bible, that's the way it's tra- translated. He's the father of mercy. And uh, he is the God of all comfort. Who comforts us in all our trouble so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have have received from God. Now we need to define some terms. Compassion, as I said, is mercy. He's the God of of compassion. He's the compassionate God, the merciful God. What, What do we mean? Well, if grace is God giving to those that are unworthy, mercy is God giving to those that are that cannot help themselves, those that are unable, those that are powerless, that are impotent, that are crushed or broken and, and bruised by life. You know, God cares if, if you've been crushed, if someone has said a hurtful thing or they've done something damaging to you or they've, they've ruined your reputation or they've besmirched your character in some way or, or they've treated you badly. God cares. He's the Father of mercy. He's compassionate. It hurts him when we hurt. As I've said before, the the one person in the world that is worthy of compassion is uh, Charlie Brown of Peanuts fame. I always think of Charlie Brown. Charlie Brown bumbles his way through life. He's the most inept person there ever was. And uh, he, he is the kind of person who draws out our Father's compassion and mercy. One of my favorite sequences is, you know, the... The uh, place-kicking sequence, which seems to go on and on. And, and uh, Lucy uh, snatches the ball up, and Charlie Brown lands flat on his back. This one particular uh, segment, Charlie Brown, Lucy says, Come on, Charlie Brown, kick the football. I won't pick it up this time. He says, I don't trust you, Lucy. She says, No, no, let's shake on it. That'll show you I'm sincere. So they shake on it. Charlie Brown backs up, you know, and he goes pounding down the turf to kick the football. She jerks it off the tee. He kicks and lands flat on his back, and he goes, ah. And uh, he gets up, and she says, 
A woman's handshake is not legally binding. <laughs> and I think, poor Charlie Brown, he, he needs compassion. He just draws that, that attribute out of us. And, and, and that's the way God responds to us when we hurt. He's the God of compassion. He's the Father of compassion. And He's the God of all comfort. Now, we need to understand what Paul means by comfort. This does not mean that God simply pats us on the head and says, There, there, now I, I understand. It's a, it's a much bigger word. It's, uh, the noun form of this word is the word that's used uh, in our Lord's teaching about the Holy Spirit, who is the comforter, or in some translations, the authorized version, he's called the paraclete. Now, paraclete is not two football shoes. A paraclete is someone who moves in alongside to help. It comes from two Greek words, para, which means alongside, and uh, the noun klesis that means uh, one, one who is called. So it's someone who's called in alongside to help. It's someone who puts his arm under our elbow, someone who puts his arm around us and strengthens us and gives us just what we need to go through life. Now, that's the kind of comfort we receive from the Lord. He doesn't merely commiserate with us. He doesn't merely say, oh, I'm so sorry that you're down and out. He does something about it. He strengthens us for all of life. And that's the kind of comfort we need. That's what we long for. We don't want people to pity us. We want them to help us to move in alongside and and do something for us. Uh, Some of you know this last uh, month I... <clears throat> had an opportunity to speak at a, a, a strange sort of conference. The uh, people at, from the First Baptist Church uh, packed into the mountains. They had a professional packer to take a group of men in, and I tagged along as their speaker, and we went back into some lakes that are rarely fished and just had a great time for about four days in there. Finally, the day came to come out, and with a lot of reluctance, uh, the packers who had dropped us came back in, and they got all of our stuff, and we loaded up and went out. They weren't reluctant. We were reluctant to leave. But uh, I was assigned to a horse uh, that I'd never seen before. Well, it didn't come in on the first string, and I didn't ride it. And I happened to look at that horse, and there's something funny about that horse. You know, I, I've been around horses all my life. My father used to raise cutting horses, and I, you know, I, I'm not a great horseman, but I know when something's wrong with a horse. And I looked at that horse, and his eyes didn't focus. Her eyes, it was a mirror. When you, when you stand in front of her and look at her, it looked like her eyes focused about 20 feet behind you. And honest to goodness, I am not exaggerating. The longer you stared at her, the more you realized that, that there was something radically wrong because her eyes would cross and they'd go up and down. And you just and I, after a while, I said to the packer, there's something wrong with this horse. <laughs> nah, he said, it's a great horse. We had a 14-year-old on that horse last week. No problems. All right, so I get on the horse, and, and the horse literally stumbled her way up, up the hill. This mare could not pick up her feet. She ran into trees. We came to a log, and she, she tried to step over the log, and she was just kind of pawing at the ground. She couldn't see the ground on the other side. I thought, I got trouble, because we had to go up this ridge and down the other side. So we dart down the other side, and the mare is sliding down this hill. It's real steep, and there's about a four-foot drop into a creek, and she just steps right off into the creek. <laughs> I'm telling you, you haven't lived until you've been on a horse that tried to walk on the air. She just, she didn't even break her stride. She just stepped out into the air and just went, bam, right on her nose. And I went off like I'd been shot out of a cannon. And uh, a few minutes later, after both the mayor and I had collected ourselves, the packer comes over and he says, what's the matter? 
I said, that horse can't see. That horse is blind. Ah, he says, that horse can see. You could wave your hand in front of her eyes, and she didn't even blink. He says, no, I didn't that horse. I had a 14-year-old kid on there last week. I'll tell you what, that was not comforting. There was no comfort in that, in that comment at all. See, I wanted some help. But unfortunately, that's the kind of comfort we often get. We, we say, they're there now. I, I'm sorry. That's a tough break. Bad fall. Sorry that you're hurt. And we walk away from the situation, but our Lord doesn't. He moves in alongside and helps. And I want you to notice, read the text carefully. He comforts us where? In all our trouble. He does not promise to take us out of our trouble. I wanted off that horse. But God does not always respond to our trouble in that way. He may leave us in our trouble because, as we'll see, that's his, uh, that's his will for us. That's what makes us manly and, and womanly. He comforts us in all our distress. There is a lot of bad theology today saying that uh, once you come to have faith, you will, your troubles are over. Your family will go well. Your marriage will uh, be untroubled. You will be financially secure. Your children will never disappoint you. You'll always be healthy. It is not true. It is not true to Scripture. It is not true to experience. It's devastating to people to believe that because life is not that way. No one knows the trouble some of you have seen, and yet you're walking by faith. Bad things do happen to good people, relatively good people. We know that. But our Lord strengthens us in our trouble. He comes to our aid. He tells us what to do. He gives us his resources. He equips us for life. He strengthens us through the trouble. All of my boys have a lot of trouble with math in school. And we're running into it again. School starting has been going two weeks. Math problems cropped up again. They come by it honestly. They all got it from me. Math was my nemesis. I hated math. Tried to avoid it at all costs. Took bare minimum in high school and I got into college and realized that the degree program I wanted was a Bachelor of Science degree and I had to take more math. I was just horrified. I struggled, just ruined my GPA all through college. I cannot get math. I still count on my fingers to this day. And I, I pass it on to all my kids. Every one of them has, has trouble with math. It is awful. They groan. They come back, you know, their old Jai, she comes back and says, why do I have to take math? I say, yeah, you just got to take math. It's not an elective, not an option. It's a required course. You got to take math. Why? Well, you don't want to grow up to count on your fingers like me, do you? <laughs> you got to take math. Now, suppose I just said to, to Josh or any of my other kids that struggle through math, Ah, you'll do all right. You'll do great. Hang in there. There wouldn't be any help. But suppose I say, now look, you have trouble with math. You're going to have to go through math, and we're going to see to it that you succeed. Whatever it costs, we're going to see to it that you succeed. We're going to block out an hour after dinner, and we're going to sit down with you. And if I can't do it or Carolyn can't do it, we'll get a tutor for you, and we'll get you through math. Whatever it costs. Now that is help. That's comfort. And that's the kind of comfort that we receive from the Lord. He, he not only understands and is compassionate, but he moves in alongside to strengthen 
and to tell us what to do from his word, how to cope with the troubles, and how to walk through them in dependence upon him. Now that's what Paul is, is, is saying when he says to us that God is the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort who comforts us in all our trouble. But that's not the end of the process. As you read on, it's not just for us. It's for everyone else that we know that's troubled. He comforts you in your trouble, so what? So you can comfort others. You're not a cul-de-sac intended to be merely a receptacle. You're a throughway. You're a channel. God wants to comfort you so you can comfort others. That means two things. Number one, we have to be willing to rely upon God's comfort in our troubles and not avoid it. And, and, and not complain, and, and not whine, and not gripe about our situation. The particular trouble that you're facing is of God's own choosing. It's what Samuel Rutherford said. Expose yourself to the, to the circumstances of God's choice. The marriage that you're in, it's God's choice for you at this moment. The set of financial difficulties that you're having... The health problems that you're experiencing, that's God's choice for you at the moment. Now, these evil things did not come from God's hand. They came from the enemy, from Satan, from the adversary. But they were permitted by God, and therefore they are ultimately his responsibility. He takes responsibility for them, and he wants us to rest in them and expose ourselves to the circumstances so we can begin to change, as we'll see. And then secondly, we need to be aware of the circumstances of others. Our tendency is to get so preoccupied with our own troubles that we're not even aware of the troubles of other people around us. We're drowning in our own, uh, in our own grief and sorrow and, and very selfish in our outlook. But Jesus said, I didn't come to be served. I didn't come to be ministered to. I didn't come into the world looking for people to care for me and comfort me. I came to serve. And that's what we must do. Now, that means we need to be aware of the problems of others. We need to listen to them. You know, I'm coming more and more to believe that one of the reasons we're not aware of the concerns of others is that we really do not know how to listen to people. We do far too much talking. We want to tell our story. We're all raconteurs. You know, we, we, we've got hundreds of stories we want to tell. So we invite somebody over to our house, and we tell a bunch of stories, and we expect them to listen. And, and, and they walk away from our house, and they think, that person doesn't know me. They don't know anything about my family. They don't know anything about my hurts or my struggles or my pains. I know a lot of his stories, but that's all I know. Now, no, we've got to learn to listen. If we do listen, our tendency is to think about the next thing we're going to say because the mind can go so much faster than the mouth can. You know, we, we, uh, while they're talking, we're thinking of some snappy rejoinder or some story that we're going to tell that will top theirs, and we don't listen. Instead of keeping our mouth shut, asking the right kind of questions, feeling around the edges for the cracks and the hurt and the pain and, and the anguish that people are going through because they don't often tell you up front where they're hurting, how will we ever know until we listen to them long enough to find out where the pain is? Just probing gently, quietly, until we find out where they need to be comforting, comforted and then taking the comfort that we've received from God and applying it to them, showing compassion and moving in alongside uh, to help. Now Paul says in verse 5, 
that this all works uh, on the basis of, uh, of a principle. Verse 5, For just as the suffering of Christ flows over into our lives, so also through Christ our comfort overflows. Now the NIV missed it a little bit here. The, uh, his point is not that God pours comfort into our life and then out of the overflow we comfort others. That's not what he's saying at all. If you have a new American standard, I believe it says, as suffering abounds, so comfort abounds. What he's saying is that for every trouble, there is an equal and compensating resource. There is compassion to meet every demand upon us. There is comfort that comforts every uh, area of stress upon us. There is an equal and compensating pressure for all the outward pressures. Now, let me illustrate. My uh, oldest son, Randy, has a uh, brother-in-law. Uh, his, his, uh, actually, it's his, his wife's brother-in-law, uh, the husband of, of her sister, who is a salvage diver. Uh, he's at Subic Bay now in the Philippines working for the Navy. He's one of these guys that puts on these rubber suits with a tin hat, you know, and, and they go way down deep, fathoms deep, where the pressure per square inch is so great that without, uh, without some compensating pressure, the diver would be crushed. And the deeper they go, the greater the pressure, the compensating, counteracting pressure. They just keep pumping air into that suit. And uh, he can work and uh, down there. He, he, he salvages sunken vessels and so forth. He can work under in great depths, fathoms deep, because of the resource that's available to him from above. Now, that's what Paul is saying. God doesn't isn't interested in random displays of power. He doesn't uh, bestow power on you so you can dazzle everyone where there's no need for it. What God does is, is supply a compensatory power to meet your pressures. Wherever you hurt, that's, that's where God supplies the need. And uh, you may go way down. You may be in the depths. But when you're in the depths, God supplies a resource that's, that's adequate for every demand, every, every pressure that's upon you. And uh, you can say what Paul says in uh, chapter 4, if you want to turn there with me, 2 Corinthians 4, 7. Paul says, we have this treasure, the treasure is Christ himself, in jars of clay, common uh, earthenware vessels. We would say today, peanut butter jars. Uh, the, the earthen vessel represents our human personality. Without a great deal of potency or, or strength, the treasure is Christ himself who indwells us. Paul says, you want to know what makes the, uh, the vessel strong? You want to know why, we don't, uh, why we're not brittle and we don't fall apart under the pressure? It's because there is a compensating treasure within. We are hard-pressed on every side, he says. The pressure's on, but we're not crushed. Perplexed. Sometimes Paul says, I don't know what in the world to do. I don't have a clue. But I'm not in despair. Persecuted. Uh, he was always the attack, uh, on the point of uh, attack for his ministry, but not abandoned. I never feel alone. Struck down, but not destroyed. Down, he says, but never out. You see what he's saying? The, the pressure comes, but for every pressure, there is a corresponding, counteracting uh, resource. God's resources available to us to counteract the pressure. Now, that's what Paul means in verse 5. Just as the sufferings of Christ are abundant in our life, so also through Christ our comfort uh, is abundant. And uh, 
So, he says, what follows is the result. It's a little difficult to unravel Paul's syntax. He has a way of saying things. Uh, sometimes uh, in such detail we lose the, the, uh, the primary meaning, but it's basically very simple. He says, if we're distressed, it's for your comfort and salvation. If we're comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. And our hope for you is firm, because we know that just as you share in our suffering, so also you share in our comfort. What Paul is saying is this. I have trouble. Nobody knows the trouble I see. And if you want to know what sort of trouble Paul had, just read uh, through chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians. So I have lots of trouble, but I also have lots of comfort. You have lots of trouble, and I'm able to comfort you. And so you're able to be comforted. And Paul says, I am absolutely sure it works this way. There is no doubt in my mind. My hope for you is secure. And hope in the New Testament has no note of, of uh, contingency. He's not saying, I hope, I hope, I hope you make it. He's saying, I'm sure you're going to make it. Because hope in the Greek language means a certainty about something that's, that's yet future. Paul says, I'm certain that you're going to make it. How does he know? Well, he tells us in the verses that follow, verse 8. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers. Actually, the verse should start with a four. It's been left out of the NIV, but it's in the NASP, I believe. Four, or this is an explanation for his hope in verse seven. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about the hardship we suffered in the province of, of Asia. Asia is not the Orient. It's not the Middle East or the Near East. It's Turkey today. It's the region in which Ephesus is located. We don't know exactly what happened at Asia. It may have been the riot there. The, the uh, silversmiths rioted because Paul had taken away their trade. So many people were becoming Christians. They weren't buying these, these little Ephesian kits. It was a, it was a little uh, uh, silver idol of, of Artemis, Diana of the Ephesians, that were produced by these ten smiths, silversmiths. And uh, Christ, uh, Paul's preaching had been so effective that uh, people were becoming Christians all over Ephesus, and they weren't buying this uh, junk anymore. And so... Uh, the, the silversmiths rioted. They, they caused the city to turn against Paul. And uh, he came very close to having his life taken. Not, not, uh, he'd been in worse situations, but uh, the air was very tense and he had to leave the city. And that may, that may be what he's talking about here because he goes on to say, We were under great pressure. We were fathoms deep. We were way over our head. Far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired even of life. Uh, Paul says, indeed in our hearts we felt the sentence of death. It's as though the judge uh, had gaveled him, had, had uh, thumped his gavel down on the desk uh, and, uh, and sentenced him to death. Paul said in his heart, I thought I was dead. I thought it was all over. I didn't think I had a prayer, he said. But... Um, this happened, and I want you to pay attention, because th this is the bottom line. This is the point of it all. Th this is the most important statement in the entire uh, section. This happened, that we may, might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. That's why bad things happen to good people. Do you realize that? That's one ex explanation for suffering. There are others. But one reason we suffer and one reason we have trouble is so we'll learn not to count on our own puny strength. Somehow we think that we have the resources to set things right. But they're human resources. So God has to teach us not to trust in ourselves, but on God who raises the dead, who does the impossible. Do you know anybody that can raise the dead? 
I, I, I can't do that. I was over in Ketchum this last summer, and I was wandering around looking for Ernest Hemingway's grave. He's buried over there in the city cemetery in the north side of town. and Couldn't find it. Uh, but as I wandered among the graves, I was, I was reading the, the gravestones and the citations and the inscriptions on them. And it just struck me that, that just like in the case of Ernest Hemingway, there's so much uh, pathos and sorrow in that man's life. Eventually he took his life. And I was looking at these other gravestones, and I thought, boy, it's just a story underneath uh, each of these gravestones. Wish I knew what these people were like. And then it struck me that they that that in every instance where I'd been involved in a funeral, there's so much sorrow and pain and hurt. And I thought of the in 25 years, I've just buried dozens of people. And I thought of all of the families gathered around the the, the grave and the sorrow and the hurt and the anguish and the uh, just the sense of loneliness. And I thought, oh, you know, if I could just say to the person in that casket, as Jesus did. Uh, come forth, John, and have that body come to life and step out of the grave. My goodness, what a what an impact that would have, and how how that would solve so uh, so much of the problems, so much of the problem of of human life. But I couldn't do that. If I did that, you all would say like Burt Jones, "How do you do that?" <laughs> no one can do that, but God can. God can. You see, that's what the Lord wants to teach us. Not to trust in ourselves and our puny, inadequate strength, but to trust in God who does the impossible, who gets us out of situations where we're way beyond our depth, clear out of our lead. And God comes through. He gives us the grace to face it, to deal with our trouble instead of running to it, instead of grabbing some pill that makes us feel good. We go to God. And we get the kind of help that we need to, to face into that distressing situation. He's the God who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril. And he will yet deliver us on whom we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us. As you help us by your prayers. That's interesting. God, he said, is the only one who can raise the dead. But, oh, yes, he says, don't forget to pray for us. I don't understand how that works. Because God is the one who does it all. Nevertheless... By praying for others in their trouble, we are able to align ourselves with what God is doing in that life. And we share in the results of his ministry. So Paul says, help us by your prayers. Do pray for us. Then many will give thanks. You folks over there in, in Corinth who are praying for us will give thanks on our behalf for the gracious favor bestowed us in answer to the prayers of, of many. So Paul says, I've got trouble and you've got trouble, but let's... Take comfort from the God who is the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort who comforts us in our distress, no matter how troubled we may be, so we can pass on that comfort to others. Three things I'd like to leave with you. Number one, do not get bogged down in your troubles. We tend to be so short-sighted, so provincial. We just think of ourselves, basically. And we moan, and we cry, and we blame others. And it's a very, very unmanly thing to do. And it's a very, very unchristian thing to do. We need to realize that our troubles ultimately come from God. They're screened through his love. Nothing has happened to us that's not part and parcel of his plan. And trust him. Don't complain. It doesn't do you any good. And it's terrible for people around you to have to hear your complaints. It's just awful to live with someone who complains all the time. Let's don't complain. 
As, as Samuel Rutherford said, expose yourselves, lay yourselves bare to the circumstances of God's choice. And, and, and just turn your back on your own troubles. You can, just a day at a time. That's probably all you can do is take it a day at a time. If you're depressed, I, no one can say to you, come on, snap out of it. That doesn't work. You can't just pull somebody out of their depression. We can't command our emotions, but we can command our will. And even though you may be down in the dumps, you can still serve. It's not impossible. You say, it is impossible. I can't do it. You can. You can. Someone pointed out to me last week that there are two kinds of impossibility. There are some things that are impossible by the nature of the thing. You can't draw a square circle... And you can't make a rope that only has one end. Now, that's impossible. But when we say it's impossible to act when we're depressed or when we're discouraged, or it's impossible to put aside our bitterness or our resentment, uh, we're, we're using impossible in a different way. We're saying it's just very, very hard. But it's not impossible. It may be very hard. It may be that you can only take it a, a moment at a time or a day at a time, but, but you can... You can step out of your, your situation and turn your back on your feelings about your trouble and you can begin to serve others. The second thing I would say is to take confidence in the living God. Let him be your comfort. Let him bestow his compassion upon you. Let him show you what you ought to do. His will is revealed in this book. He tells us what we ought to do. If you have a troubled marriage and it's very distressing to you, he says, don't. Don't bail out. Don't give up. Don't walk out. The world says, get out. So, you know, it's the only way out. Don't do that. That's not God's will. Stick with your mate. Uh, Take God's strength in order to, to love him or to her, no matter how difficult that person is. That's what it means to endure. Endurance is not gritting your teeth and just toughing it out. Endurance is doing what's right in the face of counterindications. It's obedience in the face of pressure to disobey, in the face of everything that society tells us today is, is right and good, but which is contrary to, to Scripture. If someone has besmirched your uh, good reputation or borne false witness against you or destroyed your uh, business, don't, don't be bitter. Don't be resentful. There may be some steps that you have to take. There may even be some legal steps that you have to take, but don't be bitter or resentful. See, endure, take strength, take courage in God, receive his comfort and compassion, and then thirdly, pass it on to somebody else. Don't feel sorry for yourself. We didn't come any more than our Lord did to be, to be ministered to, to have people pander to our self-interest and our self-pity. We don't need that. The more of that we get, the more we want. We can receive his courage and his strength and his compassion and his comfort and we can give it to others in their trouble. Even while we're in trouble. We don't have to wait until we're out of trouble. Even though we feel impotent. Even though we think that our load is, is crushing it. You know, Paul in Galatians 6 says, We ought to bear one another's burdens. And he turns around and says, Everyone must bear his own burden. Unfortunately, that's the way it's translated in most uh, Bibles, and it's very confusing. You say, wait, wait a minute, Paul, what are, you, what are you talking about? You say, we're supposed to bear other people's burdens, and I'm supposed to bear my own burden? What burden am I supposed to bear? Well, Paul uses two different words for burden. 
Paul says, bear one another's burdens, and he uses a word for a crushing load. And then when he says, when everyone must bear his own burden, he uses the word for a field pack that a Roman soldier wore. So what Paul is saying is, well, each of us has our own share of trouble that we have to bear. We, you know, we have problems with our children and with our marriages and with our employers and our employees, and we're financially strained and we're physically uh, below par and whatnot. That's the pack that we have to bear. Everybody has to bear one of those. But at the same time, we can, we can bear one another's burdens. The, the uh, New English Bible, I believe it is, or one of the translations has a series of stick figures across the top of the page in which this verse is contained. Everybody has this big sack over their shoulder, and, uh, and with one hand they're holding the neck of the sack, and with the other hand they're reaching out and lifting the burden of the person in front, and that's precisely what Paul is talking about here. Bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ by sharing with others the comfort that you received from the comforter. Let's pray. Would you uh, just take a moment to think through this, this teaching? It's not, it's not my teaching. It, it, just, it just comes right out of the text. And behind the text is an inspired apostle who writes with the authority of our Lord Jesus. It's not just some good advice. It's a divine revelation to which we must uh, give heed. So if you've been complaining a lot, and I suppose all of us have off and on this last week, let's, let's just tell the Lord we're sorry about that. And we really don't trust his benevolence, that we really don't see the purpose behind our trouble. And we do tend to focus on our circumstances instead of, of on our Lord. Just tell him you're sorry about that. And that you really want to do better. And then will you thank him for the comfort that he, that he gives? Thank you that he loves you. Thank him that he loves you just the way you are. With all, of your, all of our imperfection, all of our shortcomings, we all fall short. Thank him that that you're loved and that he cares about you and he's concerned about your trouble. And receive from him the comfort that he wants to give you. And it may mean some decision that you have to make, some situation that has to be set right, some act of obedience that will be costly, but nevertheless, you know it's right. Tell him you're willing to do that and ask him to strengthen you in it. Let's all pray that we'd be more and more sensitive to the people around us, knowing that well, within a radius of two or three chairs, there are people that are hurt and who need help. Help us to be sensitive to that and to offer help. Father, we're so grateful for this word of encouragement that delivers us from our self-pity and sets us free to serve. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.